I like that we get to talk about these things and we hit it from a different angle, but because we love each other and because we have the same religious views, you know, church is the centerpiece of our lives. Worship is the centerpiece of our lives. Molly Hemingway speaking at the Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. So when we are just going back and forth on politics, it's really not that important relative to the things that do in, matter. And in all safe. seriousness, if you do not have someone in your life that you both completely trust and regularly engage in arguments with, you're doing it wrong. You can watch and listen to journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway's Q&A and all of the presentations from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you links to download a podcast or watch a video stream. Order today at issuesetc.org or by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. This decline is not inevitable. It's a choice. We need to send Joe Biden back to his basement and reverse American decline. Joe Biden has weakened this country at home and abroad. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change oh, agenda whoa, 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 whoa. is a That's hoax. Ridiculous. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, What's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama, and I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing stage tonight. I am unapologetically pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted and I had trouble having both of my children, so I'm surrounded by blessings. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say it will take 60 Senate votes, it will take a majority of the House. So in order to do that, let's find consensus. Those are some of the voices from Wednesday's GOP presidential debate, a kind of a raucous time at times. Why was President Trump not there? Was it a good idea for him to not be there? And what were some of the highlights and the lowlights, especially for Ron DeSantis, who is widely acknowledged as the distant second place? Does he come out of this having achieved his goals as he runs for president of the United States? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to talk about the GOP presidential debate. Mark Hemingway joins us. He's senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. Mark, welcome. Glad to be back. First off, your thoughts on President Trump not participating in this debate last night. Well, this really isn't a mystery here. I mean, he's up in the polls by, you know, 30 or 40 points against every other contender. Just as a practical matter, I mean, if you were running a campaign, you wouldn't advise Donald Trump not to participate in the debate either. The only, you know, reason when you're that far ahead to be in a debate with that many other candidates, well, there is no reason for you to be in a debate with that many other candidates if you're front running that far ahead, because that just gives everyone else an opportunity to take swings at you and hope that you respond poorly and tear you down. It just doesn't make sense. And, you know, he's so far ahead that, you know, no one can really question him in such a way and say he's being a scaredy cat or anything like that. 
forget what you want be all of the posturing that people want to you know make about what this says about whether Trump's afraid or this or that. I mean, look, just again, if you were running a campaign against for Donald Trump, you would advise him not to participate in this because it was all downside for him to participate in no upside. So let's talk about uh, some of the participants in last night's debate, beginning with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. How did he fare? Well, I think the consensus is, is actually he did pretty well. Part of the reason why he was able to do well is because he was not, usually when you have a debate, you have a whole bunch of people going after the front runner. And the reality is, is that even though DeSantis is the, the nominal lead contender against Trump, and you'd think that would give people an incentive to go after the, you know, the, the front runner, I think the perception is that Vivek Ramaswamy now has so much momentum and has even, you know, topped DeSantis in a few polls, despite, you know, coming out of nowhere and having no political experience that everyone just kind of like laid off of uh, Ron DeSantis and went after Ramaswamy. So that allowed DeSantis to kind of get through the debate without being really challenged by everyone else on stage. He was further helped by the fact that a lot of the candidates on stage, I would say, are in sort of an, an older Republican pre-Trump mold in terms of how they approach foreign policy and a lot of other issues where Trump sort of like fundamentally changed the approach of the party. They are much more in a pro getting involved in foreign wars and, and, and whatnot and other things like that. Whereas Ron DeSantis and Ramaswamy were the two guys on the stage that I think are a little more in the Trump mold and in, in touch with Trump voters in that respect. So DeSantis, the consensus is he did pretty well because he didn't really say anything that was bad. He spoke in ways, I think, that appealed specifically to Trump voters in ways that other candidates didn't. And unlike Ramaswamy, he wasn't constantly being attacked by the other candidates on stage. So he did pretty well, all things considered. Did he do anywhere near enough to really take a, you know, make an impression in any way that you know would take a bite out of Trump's lead? Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. What was the high point and the low point for Governor DeSantis? Well, the low point was, is at one point they, he was asked this question, um, a show of hands, and I, 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 gosh, uh, I think it was about funding of Ukraine. And DeSantis kind of looked around to see whether everyone else was raising their hands because they asked for a show of hands before he raised his hand. And uh, he looked around on the stage at what other people were doing before he raised his hand. And it just like it, that looked really poorly. You know, it was clearly like a bad moment for him. As for strong moments, I mean, I think that, I mean, he didn't really have any sort of, you know, huge highlights or anything like that. It just his answers were, you know, very consistent. And, you know, they, you know, when, and I think anything he, you know, he can do to like lean back on the fact that he reminding people of his success in uh, Florida, um, you know, I think he had a you know, good answer on uh, the issue of getting prosecutors under control and lowering crime in that respect. And he's got a good track record on that. He was just consistently solid, you know, if not well, highlight reel throughout the debate. So we've already mentioned him, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. I got the impression from the coverage this morning that he was not only the center of the stage geographically, he was kind of the center of the stage in terms of the entertainment value. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, Ramaswamy has really made a name for himself primarily through media appearances. He's really good in media appearances. He's extremely quick and smart on his feet. He's able to, you know, parry a lot of pointed questions that are asked at him, like really effectively. And 
I think people were really looking for him to have a breakout appearance at the debate. I don't think he did have a breakout appearance at the debate, but I do think that the fact that he got so much attention was going to be nothing but helpful for him because, again, this is a guy starting from nowhere. He has no previous political experience. You know, he yes, he's a successful businessman, but he was not exactly a household name prior to running for president. So all of the attention and clearly all of the time and energy that people focused on him at the debate is going to make people pay attention to him more. And so that, that'll that be good for him. It's also true, though, that, I mean, there seems to be, in addition to wanting to, you know, take down Ramaswamy because he's, you know, viewed along with DeSantis to some degree as the front runner, a degree of very visceral dislike for him. <laughs> a lot of these guys are career politicians like Chris Christie or Mike Pence or whatever, and they're like fighting for their political lives up there on that stage. And here comes this entitled guy out of nowhere who's, you know, rich and hasn't done anything. He's 38 years old and he's, you know, already blowing past them in the public consciousness. And I think that they, you can tell they kind of resented it, particularly because they don't have a lot of respect for his approach to policy on a lot of things. Ramaswamy was very outspoken about, for instance, not funding the Ukraine war like we had been and a lot of people on that stage, like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, felt very strongly about the moral case for fighting Vladimir Putin and that Ramaswamy was being very dismissive of that. Ramaswamy's argument, of course, though, is that while this is going on, Europe isn't paying their fair share when it comes to supporting Ukraine, which is pretty accurate. And, you know, we could use that money at home. That's certainly a position, I think, that appeals to, you know, more Trumpy voters. So... There was really sort of a contrast, not just literally and figuratively between young and old, but between sort of the new direction of the GOP under Trump versus the old direction of the GOP, particularly on foreign policy in that regard. But yeah, um, it was really astonishing. There was a particular exchange where Pence just like cut off Ramaswamy and just tore into him like well beyond any sort of debate rules that were in place about speaking for regular amounts of time to the point where moderators had to stop the debate and corral everybody, which is, you know, unusual considering that Pence is known for being kind of a, a level-headed guy in those situations. But like, there's a very distinct visceral dislike between, you know, Nikki Haley and uh, Mike Pence and a handful of people on that stage um, with, with Ramaswamy. Any serious missteps on Ramaswamy's part? I don't think there was any serious missteps. I don't think he articulated himself as well as he could. I mean, like he went out on a big limb in Ukraine and then he got, you know, attacked immediately. And I don't think he did a great job of articulating his position on it in terms of, you know, yes, Vladimir Putin is a threat, but, you know, how do we contain that threat without spending you know, $120 billion or whatever it is on a war where no one in the United States government has even, you know, done anyone the courtesy of trying to explain what the strategy is for, you know, winning this war in such a way that we can extract ourselves and not be stuck in this quagmire in, you know, Eastern Europe forever. So he didn't really explain himself very well and he got attacked really hard on that. But on the other hand, his position, I think, is a lot more sort of au courant and in touch with a lot of Republican voters in a, in a way that like Haley and Pence's sort of more traditional neocon views in foreign policy are kind of out of touch. So it was kind of, you know, a wash for him in the sense that he and DeSantis were the only guys on that stage that were articulating more Trumpy positions on things that are more in tune with voters 
compared to these, you know, old school GOP guys. And so they benefited from that. But at the same time, like I said, there was all expectations were extremely high for Ramaswamy because he'd been very good in media appearances and had gone viral many times for, you know, his responses to CNN hosts and all this stuff. And everyone expected him to have a big sort of breakout performance at the debate, which I don't think he had. I don't think he did himself any harm at all. And, and he'll probably come out, you know, on net positive from his appearance on the, the debate stage. But he, he didn't have the breakout that he, he both needed and was probably hoping for. So you mentioned uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. How did he do? Pence has a history of being a really strong debater. He did phenomenal jobs in the vice presidential debates in both um, presidential elections that he was in and was a big boon to Trump in that respect. He was, you know, a professional broadcaster for a long time in his career, as I recall, uh, or he did, did that for some years. And he's typically very good in these scenarios, which all that is to say is like, I thought he was pretty atrocious. He was really aggressive in a way that was not befitting someone like Mike Pence, who's known for being this, you know, reasonable guy in the way that he kind of went off the leash going after Ramaswamy. A lot of his positions, which are, you know, considering he was Trump's vice president, again, mark this return to like the old GOP before Trump that wasn't, you know, where I think that it's fair to say that the party itself was out of touch with voters on trade and foreign policy and a bunch of other things. And it just, he just came off like the past six or seven years hadn't happened and that things weren't different. And, you know, Pence really needs to do something to, you know, kind of distinguish himself and justify like why he's running. A lot of voters are extremely loyal to Trump in particular. And there's a sense that Pence betrayed Trump by not going through with some of his plans on trying to sort of challenge the election results. And Pence tried to make a lot of hay out of that, you know, in terms of how he stood for the Constitution over you know, Donald Trump's wishes. But I think whatever your opinions are about January 6th, and I'm not going to get into that, you know, you can read my wife's book for a, a better picture of that. It was not the kind of thing that I think was necessarily going to appeal to voters, many of whom do in fact feel that the election was, if not stolen, but like outright rigged in sort of particularly damaging ways, which was interesting because actually I was sort of somewhat shocked to see in the Trump interview that with Tucker Carlson that was happening concurrent to the debate that Trump was pretty good at articulating some of the legal challenges that had come along that had shown serious problems with the election, like what happened in Wisconsin. But Pence tried to kind of make that the centerpiece in, in a lot of ways. And I just don't think that that kind of moderate Republican, uh, like very moderate Republican who cares a lot about January 6th and, and dislikes Trump that much and, you know, is going to celebrate Pence for his integrity. There just aren't enough of those voters out there. I imagine there's a lot of moderate Republicans that bemoan that in, in, in the Trump era and all of the negative things that have happened as a result of January 6th. But if that was Pence's one highlight, it's not going to do him any favors. Mark Hemingway is our guest. We're talking about the GOP presidential debate. He is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. We'll get into former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's performance last night after this. I think satire and humor are worth defending. I think free speech is worth defending. And I think it's a tool that we need to use in the church 
Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Humor is our tool. Humor is something that God created. The left just co-opted it for all the terrible comedies and stuff that you see and all the vulgar stuff coming out of Hollywood. It's ours, and we're going to reclaim it. And I think that's one of the, one of the missions of the Babylon Bee. The left wants to take down humor. The left demands that things that mock them and point out how ridiculous they are being get torn down. But we're just going to keep answering that with more and more humor. And I think it starts here. It starts in the church. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves. You can watch and listen to a recording of Kyle Mann's presentation, Making the Case Against Cancel Culture, from this year's Making the Case Conference. For a donation of $300, you can download an audio and video recording. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Geeshan. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in an advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry. It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the GOP presidential debate with Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations. Mark, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie came out swinging last night, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I mean, obviously, he again is he's made it kind of clear that he's running to do what he can to push Trump out of the center of Republican politics, if not American politics. And he's leaning very hard against going against him specifically. And he did make a really interesting point in the debate in terms of criticizing Trump, which I thought was good, where he, you know, he said something to the effect of set aside all of the legal questions about 
the indictments against Trump and all the things that they're doing and whether or not that's fair. There are aspects of what Trump is doing that are just simply a matter of conduct that we shouldn't like or think is acceptable, which was at least a smart way to broach the issue, considering that there's a lot of reasons to believe that the Department of Justice going after Donald Trump is really politically motivated. And Christie was trying to you know, thread the needle there and say that you know, it was Trump's behavior and decisions that were ultimately the issue in terms of being what was damaging to America. And not that he'd necessarily you know, broken any laws, although I'm not sure Christie uh, necessarily um, disagrees with the indictments either. But it was at least a smart and interesting approach to going after Donald Trump. But there's no constituency for that. Like there's no constituency for attacking Trump, who again is you know thirty or forty percent in the polls. Like I don't understand like what kind of coalition they're they're planning on building by going after Trump that way. In that sense, Ramaswamy's been you know very smart in terms of openly praising Trump, even as he's running against him because he's trying to attract you know Trump voters without alienating them, you know, and, and hopefully get that to a point where he's he's corralled enough support to make people think that you can get an alternative to Trump that will carry on his legacy without any of Trump's downsides. But Chrissy just seems to be like single-handedly on a mission to go after Trump. That's been what his, in all his media appearances to the extent that he's been campaigning have been focused on. There's always corporate media types that are willing to listen to any Republican that's going to bash other Republicans. And that all seems to be all Chris Christie's doing. Having said that, people forget he was a very talented governor and he did a great job as governor of New Jersey in many ways. And, you know, he's a former, was he a prosecutor or assistant U.S. attorney or U.S. attorney? I forget exactly what his pedigree was. But when he was asked about dealing with violent crime and, and how we should rein that in in cities, Christie gave an incredibly good policy focused answer on a subject that he knows very well. And he's, he's, you know, a talented Republican politician. It's just that post Trump, <laughs> Guys that are in the sort of old GOP mold and guys that are against Trump don't have much of a political future. And Christie did nothing to you know, mix things up last night. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was there. She was in early. She may be so far the earliest announcer for the presidency, if I'm not mistaken. There may be someone else earlier than her. How did she do? You know, the consensus seems to be that she did pretty well in terms of debate performance. One of her first lines in the debate was something about, it was like quoting Margaret Thatcher about how if you want something done, ask a woman to do it or something like that. And she's been playing up various identity politics things in terms of her Indian heritage and or her you know, status as a woman and trying to use that to her as an advantage. When she said that line about Margaret Thatcher, I, mean, I think a lot of people just absolutely groaned because a lot of people are fed up with identity politics. I mean, obviously, critical race theory and other things like that are, are issues that are animating the Republican Party. I've questioned her approach about certain things. The consensus is, though, that she did pretty well in terms of like holding her ground and you know, presenting herself well on a lot of things. Uh, again, I would question the foreign policy strategy. I mean, she's got a very sort of very neocon approach to Ukraine and other things like that and challenged Ramaswamy pretty hard on that. And, you know, I think she got some points for, you know, not being afraid and, and you know, looking good on stage as she did it. But again, I just question whether the substance of what she's doing is going to resonate with voters. I mean, at one point she said, and I remember they're talking somehow aid to Israel came up and she said something like, Israel doesn't need the U.S. The U.S. needs Israel, which even if you're pro-Israel, I mean, that's a really sort of bizarre way to like look at 
this tiny country in the Middle East that has benefited greatly for decades because of the billions of dollars in cash and military and foreign aid that we have given Israel. And I think a lot of Americans right now are very frustrated about the state of um, the country. I mean, I think Ramaswamy had a good line. He said, you know, it's not mourning in America anymore. You know, we're talking about Reagan's famous line. I think everybody knows we're facing some pretty serious domestic issues. And there's a lot of people on the, uh, you know, in the Republican party in particular on that stage that really wanted to spend a lot of time talking about what was going on in Ukraine, which don't get me wrong, is an absolute tragedy. But a lot of people who are voters, especially in the GOP primary, like want to know what Republicans are doing for them. What are they going to do about the fentanyl crisis and the border and like, you know, all these things and, you know, inflation and all these other big issues. And you can just see that people like Nikki Haley just love talking about Ukraine in a way that they don't have that same passion and intensity for talking about domestic issues. Now, in fairness, Nikki Haley is a former UN secretary and foreign policy is certainly something that she cares about and knows a lot about. But I do worry that she just came off in some ways as being branded as this, you know, neocon that wants to be you know involved in foreign wars at the expense of doing a better job of articulating um, domestic issues but having said that to the extent that she did that and articulated her position the consensus is she did pretty well i'm sure that there are a number of people that liked what they saw from her just you know just because she's you know a good polished politician and people are praising her aspects of her performance but again i i don't think there's quite the constituency out there for what she's advocating and and I don't think that you know she's going to see any huge bounce as a result of the debate. Is it a coincidence that Nikki Haley, along with Mike Pence and Chris Christie, all have worked for Donald Trump, and you have said of all three of them that they're kind of selling an outdated version of the GOP vision? Yeah, I think that's the big problem, essentially. And, you know, in an environment where Trump is running 30, 40 points ahead, it's not just some weird personal loyalty that people feel to Trump. I mean, they feel a particular personal loyalty to Trump precisely because he was the first Republican to come along and like really insist on talking about immigration and doing something about it. Even if he wasn't as effective at building the walls, he should have been. He at least made it a big deal and made it a major part of the national conversation. It was an issue Republicans have been trying to avoid. Same thing with foreign policy. When Trump got elected in 2016, you know, we'd been fighting in Afghanistan for 15 years. You know, we ended up fighting uh, in Afghanistan for two decades, and which is just an absolutely insane to think about. You know, we were fighting a war that long. And Trump was the first guy to come along in the Republican Party and be like, what's our national interest? What is our strategy for fighting these things? Why won't anyone give you any answers about it? It's really strange to me that other people in the GOP still exist at a high level and haven't at all adapted to this reality that it's pretty clear that voters want a very different approach to foreign policy, which is you know, not to say that you can't articulate a reason for why we need to fight Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, but after 20 years in Afghanistan, voters darn well want to be told, okay, what's your plan for winning? You know, how do we extract ourselves from this conflict? in such a way that America's national interests are strengthened and our enemies are weakened. And like nobody's even articulating that case. They're just saying, well, we just need to fund this war in perpetuity and we'll figure it out as we go along. And after 20 years in Afghanistan, no one will stand for that anymore. Similarly, they want someone who's going to you know, take on the left. And it does seem like 
there's a lot of people on that stage last night and in the Republican Party in general that want to fight with other Republicans instead of like figuring out, okay, how do we unite the party? And now it's understood that people have differing opinions in the Republican Party. You know, clearly some people are more pro-Ukraine in the Republican Party than others. You know, it's a site one issue where I think there is some variance among voters. But what is true is that the national Republican establishment um, and the GOP politicians, I think, are definitely in a bubble where the voters are more united on some of these issues. And, and I think a lot of people on stage kind of just need to get more in touch with voters if, if they want any sort of hope of actually succeeding personally, never mind this separate issue of whether or not uniting the Republican Party in, in a common goal could be used to improve people's lives and make the country a better, stronger place. We'll talk about South Carolina Senator Tim Scott's performance at last night's GOP presidential debate with Mark Hemingway, senior writer for Real Clear Investigations, right after the break. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Lutheranism in the public square. You're listening to Issues Etc. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about last night's GOP presidential debate with Mark Hemingway, senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. You can watch Mark and Molly Hemingway's one-hour Q&A from the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. For a donation of $300 by Labor Day, we'll send you a link, username, and password to almost 10 hours of video and audio recordings of this year's conference. You can order online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. 
Mark, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, at least from what I've heard reported, stayed above the fray. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. Tim Scott has a reputation for being a, a very nice person and a very thoughtful person. And I've met the man and I can attest to that. He deserves that reputation. And certainly so, but he's, he's known as a nice guy. And certainly the debate stage isn't always a situation where the nice guy thrives. And I don't think to uh, any extent that Scott had any sort of like breakout performance. He's a guy that a lot of people just, they just like him and, and for good reason, but it's not enough to like, like someone, you know, you've got to be willing to, you know, go fight for someone when you're running for the highest office in the land, you've got to inspire that kind of level of devotion. And I don't know if he did anything to sort of like get to that point. He did not embarrass himself in any way. He gave great answers and things. He gave probably the best answer on abortion I heard in that night, particularly because there were definitely people on stage that were trying to like run away from being pro-life. And Scott was the first guy to like turn the question on its head and say like, look, whatever you think about abortion being an albatross Republicans, the fact of the matter is, is that we have Democrats that support abortion, you know, up until birth. And like, that's just barbaric. We can't agree to, you know, just make abortion this federal issue where states decide it to themselves when liberal states are going to run off and let people, you know, be you know, performing these barbaric late-term abortions. I mean, like, that's a thoughtful moral answer in response to a lot of Republicans on stage that were just trying to dodge abortion by saying, oh, it's a small government issue and we'll leave it up to the states. I mean, it just, so he's, has his moments. And if you were watching the debate really closely, I mean, I'm sure he impressed you, but he just didn't quite have quite the charisma or gravitas he really needed to be the likable guy on stage. Instead, he just was kind of quiet and didn't speak enough. Since you had mentioned uh, Scott bringing up abortion, how would you kind of typify that topic in the debate last night? Well... It's interesting. There's been, I think there's this kind of consensus that's been sort of reinforced by the press coverage, and I'm not sure that's the best way to go about it, among a lot of Republicans that being strictly pro-life is somehow a net negative for Republicans. I'm not saying it isn't, but I think the jury's kind of still out on that. I mean, you have you had people on stage last night, like Ron DeSantis, who signed like a six-week abortion ban and like banned abortion after six weeks. And went on to just have an absolutely crushing landslide victory in, you know, what was a purple state a couple of years ago. I mean, like he, I think he won, he won in Miami and won by like well over a million votes or something and just absolutely insane. So it can be done. You know, you can have stricter pro-life laws and it's not necessarily going to be a political albatross, but there's a lot of Republicans that are, you know, obviously running away from it. Like Nikki Haley, she had kind of a good answer about like making sure Republican doesn't like d don't demonize women, but it's also true that she wanted to kind of run away from the issue in terms of saying that you know this is something that you know we have to leave up to states or we have to let people make their own decisions about it without demonizing them, et cetera. You know, the, the bottom line is that look, this is a clear moral issue, and you need to sort of take a stand on it. We haven't talked about Doug Burgum yet, although I don't know there's much to talk about. But, you know, Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, is running and he he pulled out a pocket constitution and he said he's a pro-life governor of a pro-life state. But the 10th Amendment was made for these kinds of situations, which, again, as the Tim Scott answer on abortion showed that that's just not right. You can't say, well, you know, because we have the 10th Amendment, California can, you know, murder children when they're in the birth canal. That's just barbaric and wrong. 
And I think a lot of Republicans think that they've found this like convenient answer by saying, oh, it's a small government issue or it's a federalism issue. And that's just, I think, silly. I mean, we need a clear, articulated moral position on this from politicians. I'm willing to accept that maybe the voters aren't as pro-life as I would like them to be. But I think I would like to see some moral leadership in terms of, you know, people that are ostensibly pro-life politicians going out there and saying, okay, what's our plan for convincing people to be more pro-life? What can we do to show people that adoption is an answer? What can we do to make sure that people are not turning to abortion as an easy out, that people understand how serious this is? Um, And this is a time for moral leadership, not like easy answers. And it seems to me that a lot of Republicans just want to swat abortion off to the side and, and not address it. And other than Tim Scott's answer, I was not favorably impressed with what was said on stage last night. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson was also there. What did he contribute? I don't even know what to say about Asa Hutchinson. Like, I'm struggling to remember a single thing that he said. He's made it very clear he doesn't like Trump. He's made it very clear he's more moderate. He's made it very clear he thinks that a more moderate path is the way forward for the GOP, but without articulating any sort of sympathy for very specific policy issues where Republican voters rightly feel that national political establishment and the Republican establishment especially have betrayed them, whether it's trade, foreign policy, immigration, all these issues. And it just seems to be like Asa Hutchinson's goal is to turn the clock back to 2012 and he can run for president as Mitt Romney and, you know, lose by a couple of million votes to whoever the Democrat is, but he lost with integrity. The reality is, is that I think a lot of people feel that the you know crises America is now facing are so great that winning can't be an afterthought. And these key issues that I think alienated a lot of working class voters from the GOP for a long time, like issues that Trump effectively picked up on, foreign policy, trade, immigration, those things can't be neglected. And it seems to me like anyone up there who's just bashing Trump without also at least acknowledging that Trump was very perceptive about how the GOP was failing a lot of voters just should take their ball and go home because they're never going to you know, get enough votes or have any sort of impact in the conversation in a way that's all that helpful or changes anything. I heard someone commenting this morning that if there's no big breakout of any of the candidates that were on the debate stage last night in the coming days, the real winner of that debate was Donald Trump for not showing up and choosing a what's proving to be a very popular venue to get his message out. What are your thoughts on that assessment? Well, my assessment is I don't think we need to wait a few days. <laughs> I mean, nothing about what happened last night is going to move the needle in any meaningful way. And I feel pretty confident saying that. Having said that, I mean, never say never in politics. You know, who knows? Trump could have a stroke tomorrow or something. You know, he's not a young man. I mean, anything can happen that could scramble the race. But I don't think that the debate is in any way going to be a factor or cut into Trump's you know, monumental lead at this point in time. As evidenced by the fact that Trump felt that he didn't even need to show up. The viewing numbers for Trump's online interview on Twitter, of all places, with Tucker Carlson were just absolutely massive. I mean, I can't remember last I looked at it. It said it had a couple hundred million views. Now, keep in mind that I think that Twitter, like, 
counts something as a view if you've watched it for more than a second or two. So it's not like 200 million people watched that 45 minute interview, but still millions and millions of people watched it. I mean, Trump got his message out and further, unlike the absolute chaos of that debate where there were all those people on stage and they were you know, tearing down Ramaswamy and it was just, you know, a lot of sort of like ugly chaos. And, and I haven't said anything about the moderators, but I, I felt that like there was a lot of missed opportunities and, and questions that should have been asked that weren't. It just wasn't a very good debate, period. On the other hand, Trump's interview with Tucker kind of surprised me. I haven't always been like the world's biggest fan of Trump, but he came off as pretty sober in his interview and calm. You know, he seemed to understand the issues when he was asked about the 2020 election. He spoke about things with the degree of understanding that I mentioned earlier that I think was actually sort of helpful as opposed to some hysteric who thinks the election was stolen from him. He talked about a lot of bread and butter issues that Americans care about, like things like electric vehicle regulations and whether or not you're going to be able to drive your own car or power and water regulations and inflation. And he talked about all kinds of things in, in ways that I thought were, you know, don't get me wrong, he's still Trump and he's still, you know, sort of a bit um, circuitous in terms of how he talks about things. He's still entertaining, but he was definitely, you know, more of a, a sober Trump than he, than he has been a lot of times in that interview. And, you know, will Trump always be that version of himself? I mean, obviously, you know, Trump has gone back and forth big time in terms of being sort of emotional and outspoken and, you know, being a guy that does have a, a lot of gravitas. But certainly for last night, the, if you watched both Trump's interview and you sat through the sort of, you know, insanity of that debate with, you know, a bunch of people yelling at each other and everything, the contrast is extremely favorable for Trump. And it made it very clear, I think, to a lot of people why he didn't feel the need to, to be there. So it was interesting. Mark Hemingway is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. You'll find a link to his columns on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, talking with Pastor Jonathan Connor about relationships. And we'll discuss the limits of archaeology with Dr. David Adams. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.